You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. He believed in public service. He always said that's a place where you can do more for your fellow man than any place else. And he really instilled that in us. So by the time I was 8, 9, 10 years old, I was going to the courthouse lawn to listen to every politician that came through. Former Arkansas Governor and Senator Dale Bumpers. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Born and raised in a tiny rural Arkansas town, Dale Bumpers was drawn at a very early age into public service by his encouraging father. Service in the Marine Corps during World War II was followed by law school and then a very successful legal career. Dale Bumpers was, as he called his 2003 memoir, the best lawyer in a one-lawyer town. His political career began in 1970. He ran for governor of Arkansas and won. After that, he flirted with the idea of running for president, but instead ran for U.S. Senate and served there for the next 24 years. A fiscally conservative Democrat, Bumpers earned a reputation as a powerful and influential senator. And in one of his most memorable moments in the U.S. Senate, Bumpers delivered a closing argument in the Bill Clinton impeachment trial. The president suffered a terrible moral lapse. A marital infidelity, not a breach of the public trust, not a crime against society, it is a sex scandal. In 2003, four years after leaving public office, Dale Bumpers wrote his memoir. And that's when I had a chance to meet him. So here now from 2003, Senator Dale Bumpers. You anticipated a few minutes ago when we were off tape what my first question to you was going to be, which is why did you write this book? But apparently uh, it was not initially your idea. It was not. I hate to confess that. But Random House came to see me, and uh, this was shortly after I delivered a speech, actually the closing argument in the Clinton impeachment trial. Mm. And it had received quite a bit of notoriety, and I assumed that that's what they were coming about. But when the senior editor, John Carp, came in, he said, we had just as soon you end this book the day you were sworn in as governor. We do not want a public policy book. Those books just gather dust on the shelves. And uh, so from there, we began to talk about the possibilities of writing a, a memoir. And uh, the best lawyer in a one-lawyer town is the product. <laughs> I have to tell you, and I will tell you, I told you off the record a moment ago, I will tell you on the record now what a fantastic book this is. This, you, you come across as a very human being, and I, I know to most people that wouldn't seem to be a compliment, to a, but to a politician to say, you really seem like a human being. Well, Bill, as I wrote the book, I must confess, when I think about my daughter suffering a, you know, a, a, what we thought was a terminal illness, my mother and father being killed in a car wreck, Seeing Franklin Roosevelt when I was 12 years old, and we were so impoverished at the time, all of those things. And a high school English teacher, along with my father, who kept my self-esteem up my fa- and, and really built my character. The two things my father was most concerned about was that we not think because we were poor that there was some, some, something shameful associated with that. Constantly told us that what's on our back is not nearly as important as what's in our heart. And he would tell me from time to time, you know, different things that built my self-esteem. My high school English teacher, and we were so blessed because it's a terrible thing to say, but teachers only had two professions, nursing and teaching school. So we got the very best and the brightest. And Miss Dahl, who was my high school English teacher and made us read Beowulf, which everybody's read, told me after I had read a couple of uh, paragraphs in a class one day, she, she stopped and I looked up 
because I'd been reading for quite a while, and she hadn't stopped me. And she looked at the class, and she said, doesn't he read beautifully? And doesn't he have a beautiful voice? And she paused, and she said, and wouldn't it be a tragedy if he didn't use those talents? Well, you know, my spirit soared. And that plus my father's constantly reminding me that I could be anything I wanted to be and that he hoped I'd be a politician. Probably the only man, uh, ex well, he's not alive anymore, probably the last person to ever uh, ask his children to go into politics. <laughs> or to be a politician. Or to be a politician, right. <laughs> now, it's not like you grew up in Little Rock or Chicago or in New York where the world is full of opportunities right at your doorstep. Charleston is a, is a small place. 851 people, and of course we were so embarrassed by the city limit sign, which uh, proudly proclaimed we had 851 <laughs> souls in that community. But And there were 27 Charlestons, this was just one of them. And as I said, there were thousands of communities across the country suffering the same kind of poverty we did. We worked in the fields, we picked cotton, we picked up potatoes until we were sore to, to the point that we couldn't sleep at night. And we started doing that, you know, by the time we were eight, ten years old. And had a paper route and worked after school in the grocery store. But during the real depth of the Depression, my mother never allowed the grocery store to go above $15 a month. Uh, she never allowed us to listen to the radio with the light on because the thought of having two electrical appliances on at the same time was unthinkable. And I, we had to improvise. We had a very starchy diet, hybrid, uh, uh, hydrocarbons and so on. Mm -hmm. And uh, we uh, had meat. We had protein once a week. That was on Sunday. And that was usually an old rooster out of the barnyard. <laughs> now, now, your folks were Methodist? We were grow, We grew up as very devout Methodists. And there were the, five bumpers who were Methodist preachers. <laughs> oh, gee. And the, and the rest of the town was Catholic and Baptist, and every now and then a Presbyterian. Yes. <laughs> the Presbyterians were very limited. Uh, you know, when in the Methodist and Baptist church, if somebody moved out, we could sort of depend on somebody else moving in in the not-too-distant future to make up for it. Among Presbyterians, the church just continued to decline until they finally closed. But the, the, but the Catholics were all German Catholics who came to this country around the turn of the century during one of the great potato famines. And my father's business partner was a Catholic, but there was plenty of prejudice against the Catholics then, including my mother, who she didn't trust Catholics or Baptists either one. If they weren't Methodists, you know, they were suspect. <laughs> but, uh, but the Catholics, were very good farmers. They were neat people. They were honest people. They paid their bills. My father judged everybody as whether they paid their debts or not. But uh, it was a community with a Catholic school that went through the eighth grade, a magnificent Catholic church, the spire of which you could see for miles. And when people came home from the war after World War II, I can hardly talk about it without choking up because when they'd see that spire, you can imagine Protestant Catholic, where they were all just rhapsodic to see home again. Mm. Now, and, and forgive me for having to fast forward quickly because in the interest of time, but your wartime experience, you get your notice, you go down the, uh, the draft board, they say, what branch would you like? You say the Air Force, and they said to you... <laughs> Air Force is all full today. Everything <laughs> I suggest was all full. <laughs> and all of a sudden I hear somebody go, wham! And that, uh, that uh, thing he had in his hand stamped United States Marine Corps, and I became a Marine that day for the next three years. Now, at that point, what did you know about the, what had you know, did you know about the Marines? What did I you knew heard? nothing about them except they were being killed in great numbers in the South Pacific, mm -hmm. in the island-hopping strategy that we had developed trying to get to Tokyo. Uh, of course, boot camp was a breeze. 
boot camp was the most horrible experience I ever had in my life. And I just, you know, you can prepare and you can anticipate a lot of things, but nobody can anticipate boot camp. And in my case, there were, I guess there were about seven platoons in our group. But we had, and all the rest of them, I can remember Bill Lundigan, who was a movie star at the time, and he was, a, he was a, one of the drill instructors in one of the other platoons, and everybody else seemed to get along fine. We had a certified lunatic for a drill instructor. He was brutal. I mean, he beat on people. Uh, Nearly every, killed a guy, I understand. He did. He almost killed a man. And uh, I can't describe to you what it was like. We, were in, we lived in holy terror during the entire 10 weeks for fear of what he would do. But you made it through basic, now, you, and you survived the war. Tragically, you lost one of your best friends during the war. I didn't. One of the things that makes politics a fascinating business, Bill Elderton, who had actually fought for me in boot camp because there was a big guy who had it in for me, and he could have, you know, I knew he could do great damage to me, and he intended to. But before he could get his fist cocked, Bill Elderton decked him. And I was always, I always loved Bill Elderton. He was an eighth-grade educated chicken catcher from northwest Arkansas. Good-looking, six-foot-three, and he was so worried about whether he'd ever see his child. His wife was pregnant when he went in the Marine Corps, and he was killed in the first wave on Peleliu without seeing that child. And uh, so, you know, I thought about Bill almost every day of my life, and when I was running for governor, when I started off with 1% name recognition, and I was just going door-to-door, stopping in every newspaper, hoping they'd write an article about me, and I went to the Springdale News, and I walked in, and I said, is Charlie Sanders here? He was the editor. She said, no, he isn't, but the assistant editor's here. And I said, well, I'd love to visit with him. She showed me to his office, and I walked in, and I said, I'm Dale Bumpers, and I'm running for governor. He said, I'm Bill Ellerton. So you can imagine what an event that was. So I was able to tell young Bill Ellerton so many things about his father nobody else could have told him. But that's the that's – what politics is about a lot of times. You get a chance to do so many things mm-hmm. like that. After this short break, Dale Bumpers, well, well you, want to, you won't believe what he did when he was in college. Start your day with Now I've Heard Everything. We post new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 5 o'clock a.m. Eastern Time. Subscribe now so you'll have something fresh to listen to and get your day going. Now back to my 2003 interview with Senator Dale Bumpers. Now we're after the war. We, you're in law school. You're at Northwestern. You tell in the book it's it's a, it's a very it, it's almost a, a chill down your spine kind of chapter in which you discuss the two times in your life that you've experienced some kind of ESP, some kind of some kind of extrasensory kind of uh, moment that that you had. Bill. I almost left that out of the book because it's sort of surreal, you know, when you talk about ESP. But these two things actually happened to me, and I don't even believe in ESP, but I just told them because it's so, uh, it was so compelling. Uh, the first story was when I was in the Marine Corps. I uh, was on guard duty. It was about 5 o'clock in the morning in San Diego, and I turned to the fellow who was on, Marine, who was on guard duty with me there. I said, I wonder what would happen if a bomber flew into the Empire State Building. Well, as it turned out, there was a bomber flying into the Empire State Building almost as I spoke and killed 13 people. Why I thought of, he, he asked me, he, Frank, he said, what in the hell made you think of that? And I said, I really don't know. I just thought about it. And the other experience I had was 
I was on the 11th floor of a dormitory overlooking Lake Michigan. I was a freshman in law school at Northwestern. And uh, I could tell it had started raining because I was sitting at my desk studying, but I could hear the, you know, the noise that cars make on the rain, rainy pavement. And I got up and I walked to the window and looked out over Lake Michigan. It was a very foggy, rainy day, terrible day in March. And I turned around to my classmate who was in, I had a roommate and a classmate. And I said, I wonder, I said, have you ever lost anybody in your family that was really close to you? And he said, well, I had an aunt die. And I said, no, I'm talking about somebody really close to you, like a parent or a brother or sister. He said, no, I never did. But I suddenly had a spine-tingling feeling about that. And within two hours, I got a call that my mother and father had been in a car wreck. And it had to have almost happened precisely at the moment I had raised the question. And of course, as you well know, I don't mind revealing this, my mother and father both died. Now at that point, you're, you're a young man, but you don't feel much more like a, than a kid at that point. I was a kid, and I realized it when I visited my father and mother in the hospital. I realized, you know, it wasn't that I was just a practicing coward about things like that. It was that I, I just could not believe it, couldn't accept it. I was so devastated. And I realized how immature I was at the age of 23. But believe me, you age in a hurry when you lose both your parents and, you know, you're in law school, you're all on your own, and you wonder what's going to happen to you. Did the loss of your father especially steal your resolve to, to become a politician? It did. I might not have had the compulsion to get into politics had my father lived. But the fact that he was dead and the fact that he wanted me so badly to be a politician, he just believed in, he believed in public service. He always said that's a place where you can do more for your fellow man than any place else. And he really instilled that in us. So by the time I was eight, nine, ten years old, I was going to the courthouse lawn to listen to every politician that came through and just grew, you know, sort of captivated by it. But I really didn't, I didn't think about running for something as uh, awesome as governor. And as, you know, I point out in the book, I had 1% name recognition. You can imagine how many people knew you practicing law in a town of 851 people. So I just jumped up and ran, probably more to keep faith with my father than anything else. I really, it was a silly, inane thing to do. I didn't have any money. Nobody knew who I was. But I got lucky because there were eight men in the Democratic primary, and we have runoffs in Arkansas. Mm -hmm. The vote was so split. I got 21% of the vote, but that was enough to get me in the runoff against the Mm -hmm. Arch segregationist Orville Faubus. Oh, which, which itself is a fascinating chapter in your book. But one reader of your book had posted something on Amazon. They said they loved the book, which, you know, which everybody does. But they said you didn't directly answer the question why you had never run for president. And do you have an answer for that? Have you thought about that? I th- or have I thought about it? <laughs> <laughs> well, of course you I have. have. I have made one confession uh, in the last two years that I had never made before, and I didn't even put it in the book. But uh, I, and I, and I don't quite know how to say this, I didn't have a suitable answer for not running. All I knew was that somehow or other, my instincts told me not to. But the confession is, I have lamented, in the last two years in particular, that I didn't try it. And my father would have been disappointed. I had as good a chance as anybody in 1976. That was the year that I might have been elected. 
Jimmy Carter and I were elected governor the same year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so we'd have started off sort of even in that campaign. In 1983, I went around the country and, um, and got really good reviews every place I went. It was very flattering, ego-building. But I also had enough sense to know that nobody was going to beat Ronald Reagan in 1984. So, it's the country's loss. Thank you. Uh, but I couldn't help thinking back to you, the, the moment that you opened the book with, seeing Franklin Roosevelt in the back of the train, riding home with your father and him telling you and your brother, if this man who's had polio and who walks with 12 pounds of iron on his legs can be president, why can't you? Well, that was a defining moment for me. The fact that my father told me I could be president, and then Miss Dahl told me that I had a beautiful voice, and it would be a tragedy if I didn't use that. Those two things, plus the fact there's one other element to that, and that is I tried a lot of lawsuits, and I lost two jury trials in 18 years. And in the final analysis, I thought, you know, if I can convince juries, perhaps I can, and television was the medium then. That was one of the first years television really became the medium of politics. And I thought, you know, if I can do that, perhaps I can sell the whole, the whole state. And we'll, we'll tease readers with this. I, I, we don't have too much time to go into the story, but you're actually one of the very first telemarketers. <laughs> <laughs> I was not only one of the first telemarketers, that was the worst job I ever had. <laughs> they paid me $3 an hour, which was a princely sum when I was in law school. And I sat at the microphone just as I'm sitting at this microphone, and uh, I would talk on the telephone. The, the mic was really a telephone. And I had earphones where I could hear and talk. And I'd call these people. We were trying to accomplish something in Congress. I won't go into the details about what the issue was. But uh, I did that for about five months. And $3 an hour was tough to give up. But I'm telling you, the first call I ever made was to a man in Amarillo who screamed at me and said, if you ever call me again, I'm going to come up there and tear a leg off and beat you to death. He said, I give you guys $1,000, and you spend it on telephone calls, and I got a letter from you every day. And about six months later, I made a call, and I knew almost by the time the man answered the phone, it was the same guy. <laughs> so I hung up the phone and walked out, and that was the end of my telemarketing career. <laughs> Bless your heart. Listen, you know, there's, there are a lot of interesting stories in the book. And uh, running against uh, Bill Fulbright was a very mm-hmm. difficult thing for me. He had been a good friend. I liked him. Uh, he, he was opposed to the Vietnam War, and so was I. I thought he'd served this nation very well. But I knew he was going to get beat. We'd taken a poll that showed he was incredibly weak. And so it was an agonizing decision to run against somebody that was a friend. But uh, I'm glad I did because he was going to be defeated, and that gave me an opportunity to, to serve. And the story about Charleston being the, own, the first town in the 11 states of the old Confederacy to integrate its schools... And we did it just because we thought it was the right thing to do. And today, that little town of Charleston school system is a national commemorative site and a part of the national park system for that very courageous move. Dale Bumpers died on New Year's Day 2016. He was 90. Now, you can get a copy of The Best Lawyer in a One-Lawyer Town by Dale Bumpers by tapping on the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. We may earn an Amazon commission if you make a purchase. HeardEverything.com is where you'll also hear my 1997 interview with another very successful and colorful lawyer, 
Jerry Spence. I never interviewed O.J. Only thing I did is I talked with him on the telephone. He said he didn't do it. And I didn't ask him that. He just told me he didn't do it. And my 1998 conversation with another longtime successful member of Congress, Colorado's Pat Schroeder. Where I found the most politicians getting in trouble is when they always start trying to deny something, uh, straighten their halo, pose for holy pictures, and then the press is off to the war, you know, because they know. They know. And, of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us everywhere you listen to podcasts. And thank you so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, a man whose book you probably have on your shelf somewhere because he wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, my 1989 interview with Stephen Covey. The key is to work in your own circle of influence and to build your security within. Then you're not a function of how other people treat you. And in a sense, it's like carrying your own weather with you. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thank you.